you're a fisherman on a Japanese trawler called the Lucky Dragon Number 5. It's early morning on the 1st of March, 1954. Very early in the morning, just before dawn. Most of the crew are still asleep, exhausted after working a long evening pulling out fishing lines. But you've woken up, hungry, and needing to wee. So you've made your way up to the deck. The vessel is bobbing around in calm, dark seas, not far from the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean. You weren't really supposed to be in this area. You'd originally been fishing near Midway, but your boat hadn't really lived up to the Lucky Dragon part of its name. And considering there's nobody on board called Monica, Rita, or Erica, hasn't lived up to the number five part either. This is going to be a contender for the most unlucky fishing trip in history. And it started there where you lost a bunch of your fishing nets. So after that, the decision was made to change position and sail towards the Bikini Atoll, one of the countless rings of coral islands across the vast Pacific. This fateful decision was going to put you in one of the unluckiest places at one of the most unfortunate moments in all of fishing history. You finish relieving yourself, listening calmly to the sounds of the ocean around you, peering as far as you can into the darkness, unable to see beyond what the breadth of bright stars in the sky allow. You pull up your trousers, and you do up your belt. Then suddenly, the last thing any fisherman having a wee at sea should rightfully expect to happen, happens. Everything to the west turns bright, like a sudden and all-too-soon sunrise. The west is not where sunrises belong. You can now see all around you, right into the distance, everything lit up by a giant, dreadful orange glow. You can feel it. Something is dramatically wrong. It's so bright that others have woken up and come on deck to see this strange, unnatural sunrise. It's as if the universe has changed in some bizarre way. You speak to each other, wondering what it might be. Everything else is eerily silent. You head towards the stern of the boat and start thinking about breakfast, when about eight minutes after the sudden and dramatic explosion of light, the silence is broken by a loud, low rumble, which seems to be emanating from the earth itself. It comes hurling across the waves, roaring over the ship like overlapping avalanches. You instinctively throw yourself to the deck, like you had done so many times in the war, which had ended fewer than ten years before. It's a sound more terrible than any you've ever heard. As the real dawn breaks, in the east where dawns belong, what greets you on the horizon is a sight that you have only ever seen before in pictures and film reels. It's a gigantic mushroom cloud. Someone near you whispers, an atomic bomb. The Lucky Dragon number 5 is about 140 kilometers or 85 miles away from where it exploded. You resume your work, going about dragging in nets, 
But as you do so, you keep your eyes on the gigantic mushroom cloud that just keeps expanding, coming closer, and eventually filling the entire sky above the ship. Then, it begins to rain. Along with this, the wind picks up, not into a faint breeze, but a screaming gale. The rain is falling at force, but it is seriously strange rain. It's white. And it is turning you all and everything around you also white. You've never seen rain like this before. You wipe some of it off the deck with your finger and you put a little on your tongue. It's gritty and it has no taste. Within the five hours that the white rain continues to fall, ill effects begin to be felt by members of the crew. Dizziness, diarrhea, vomiting, the onset of fever. You don't really talk to each other about it. You don't understand what is happening. The next day, your skin begins to blister where the ash had touched you. You begin to call it Shinohai, death ash. Apologies for the Japanese pronunciation. Did my best. The boat returns to port, which takes 10 days. By the time you arrive, your hair has begun to fall out and your skin begins to turn black. You sell your fish at the market, and then you and the rest of the crew check yourselves into hospital. What you, you humble Japanese fishermen, have experienced is the close proximity explosion of a thermonuclear bomb called Castle Bravo. Its yield was 14.8 megatons of TNT. That is roughly 1,000 times more powerful than the A-bomb that had been dropped on Hiroshima. It was also roughly two and a half times greater than what had been predicted by its designers and manufacturers. Not actually being a humble Japanese fisherman in the 1950s, but rather a humble podcast listener in the 21st century, neither you nor we have to worry about really going through this experience with our fingers crossed. All we can do is try to imagine how bloody awful that white nuclear rain would have been and follow that with the 10-day trip back home as the effects start to become clear. Castle Bravo still stands today as the third largest nuclear device ever detonated. Although all people had been removed from the set boundaries of exposure, those boundaries were way too small, given how much bigger the explosion was than expected. Within three days, pretty much everyone on islands in other nearby atolls, like Rongelap and Uteric, started showing symptoms of severe radiation sickness. Years later, thyroid and other cancers, miscarriages and childbirth problems would, to this day, show upward trends. And those atolls, tragically, would by no means be the only ones to experience nuclear explosions. At the height of Cold War tensions, when nuclear disarmament was not yet a popular policy, the big nuclear powers were testing their wares. In the Pacific, from the 1940s to the 1960s, the US exploded over 100 nukes. Britain, after being forced to stop testing in Australia by Australia, blew up nine devices in the Pacific in 1957 and 58. 
And between 1966 and 1996, France forced to stop detonating nukes in Algeria by Algerians who decided to claim their independence would then go and explode over 190 of them in the Pacific. So that is the context of today's episode. Big powers with big weapons, needing to test them out, but unwilling to do so near inhabited areas of their own people. And it's also about one little country. One country with small, hobbity people who were about to go on an epic adventure to try and stop their backyard from becoming Mordor. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This episode is The Sinking of the Rainbow Warrior. And it's brought to you by walking around in jandals, swimming in togs, getting something on ticks, living out in the wops, looking skucks, and eating fish and chips while sitting on your dick out the back, bro. From the moment we are born, we are told we must obey. It's a mistake to rebel, treason to defy. Change is a dreaded thing. Until it's not. These are the stories of those who disobey and their acts of defiance, world-changing or inconsequential. The characters who forge their own paths and the cycles of change driven by women and men willing to stand up, look authority in the face and say stuff you and stuff what you tell me. When testing nuclear weapons, big nations like the United States and the Soviet Union didn't have to worry about exposing their populations to fallout because they had large uninhabited areas like Nevada and Kazakhstan, which they could happily blow to pieces with their nuclear toys. Other powers did not have the same luxury. Britain didn't go and explode nukes in Britain because, well, despite British cities often looking bleak and desolate, as though they've already been through a nuclear apocalypse, British people still live there, and they would not have approved. Same with France. So, these powers went and exploded them in the remote regions of their former and current colonial empires, like in the centre of Australia and the Pacific Ocean, where only people with no voting power in Britain or France lived. Global public reaction against Pacific testing was almost immediate. It was generally recognised by publics around the world as a dick move of the highest order. Who goes blowing up a nuclear bomb in an ocean? That's why people like Henry Kissinger condoned it. Actually, when he was questioned about the testing around the Marshall Islands and how it may affect the lives of those who live there, he is oft-quoted to have said, quote, There are only 90,000 people out there. Who gives a damn? End quote. Kissinger has since actually denied this, of course, but this could perhaps be expected from someone whom many would consider to be a dick of the highest order. Anyway, by the late 1950s, an anti-nuclear movement had begun growing ever more fervently around the world. Public outrage originated at the case of the Japanese trawler. After the Lucky Dragon number 5 had returned to its port and the crew had gone to hospital and then word got out about their ordeal, media from around the world began to report their story to the shock and horror of people everywhere. Turns out, 
You didn't just have to be in the immediate blast zone to be horribly affected by a nuclear explosion. Now, nuclear fallout had become a recognized thing. In Japan, protest movements converged to become the Japanese Council Against Atomic and Hydrogen Bombs. The number of signatures collected on anti-nuclear petitions in Japan at the time has been suggested to be at over 35 million. In Britain in 1958, thousands of people walked about 80 kilometers over four days to London from an atomic weapons research facility near Aldermaston, Berkshire. What became known as the Aldermaston March would continue every Easter into the late 60s, at its peak reaching tens of thousands of participants. In 1958, former US Navy commander Albert Bigelow sailed his 30-foot catch, the Golden Rule, towards the exclusion zone of the Marshall Island testing site, but he was blocked by the US Navy. This action did, however, inspire others, and in the same year, Barbara and Earl Reynolds, with their homemade yacht named the Phoenix of Hiroshima, became the first nuclear protest vessel to sail into an exclusion zone. This method of protest would become a trademark of the anti-nuclear movement. In the US, in 1961, over 50,000 women across 60 different cities took part in the anti-nuclear Women's Strike for Peace, the largest national women's peace rally of the 20th century, which included 1,500 at the foot of the Washington Monument protesting as JFK looked on. This was all compounded later on in that decade when U.S. plans to use the island of Amchitka in far northwest Alaska for nuclear testing became known, and compelled about 7,000 people to block the Peace Arch border crossing between Washington and British Columbia. Although this did not stop the test in 1969, it did give rise to the organization that would become synonymous with anti-nuclear protesting around the world. And just quietly, It's the organization whose ship is going to be blown up by spies later on. In Vancouver, BC, a group had formed known as the Don't Make a Wave Committee. The main protest point against testing in Amchitka was that it is in a tectonically unstable region, and fears were that such explosions would set off deadly tsunamis that would hit the northwest of the continent. The idea to sail a ship in protest to Amchitka came from within this committee, from member Marie Bolin. She'd been inspired by the plight and efforts of Albert Bigelow and the Reynolds in 1958. The committee became a central hub of the global anti-nuclear movement. A benefit concert was organized in Vancouver in 1970 that was highly successful, and enough money was raised that a ship could be chartered for the purpose of sailing to Amchitka and protesting the detonation of nukes. The ship was called the Phyllis Cormac, which is none too inspiring a name, and so they've renamed it for the protest voyage, using a term that had been coined by ardent activist Bill Darnell, Greenpeace. Although the US Coast Guard prevented their approaching the site with Greenpeace, enough publicity and subsequent public pressure eventually forced the US to abandon its planned use of Amchitka. In fact, Public pressure, as well as international diplomatic pressure, eventually pushed the US, Britain, and the Soviets 
into signing the 1963 Treaty Banning Nuclear Weapon Tests in the Atmosphere, in Outer Space, and Underwater, more commonly known as the Partial Test Ban Treaty. This would be one step, at least on the face of it, towards stopping testing around the world. But France was only just in the midst of completing their own nuclear bomb. They obstinately refused to sign the moratorium on test bans, and so when they started testing in the Pacific in 1966, it was in the face of a fairly established global opinion that had come up against it. But despite the general disapproval, who would actually stop them from testing in territories that were considered, in the eyes of the world, to belong to France? Public protest alone would not achieve this. As the great nuclear powers further developed their technologies and equipped their navies, their armies, their air forces with nuclear armament, these devices were being conducted around the world, shipped on frigates and submarines and destroyers, brought into ports and carried across oceans. Three of these nuclear powers were allies, and were furthermore allied to dozens of other countries around the world. Would the allies of France and Britain and the US merely have to accept the nuclear armaments of those powers? especially if their ships arrived to dock at port? The fallout of Castle Bravo, which we spoke about at the beginning, had shown that nuclear testing can affect a much larger area than just the immediate vicinity of the explosions. The apparent widespread impact, and even the risk of impact, was especially poignant for those allied countries around the Pacific, who were now looking at the immense areas of Earth being threatened by this testing. But who, of those bearing the brunt and risking radioactive fallout in their regions, was going to stand up against such powerful countries with such powerful weapons? If those allies of the US, Britain and France didn't like it, and if public disapproval was not actually going to stop it, then a hero had to emerge from within the Pacific region and stand defiantly against them. A nation needed to rise from the fold whose government and leaders would bow not to the Cold War era demands of global fear and insecurity when both were prevalent, but instead would bow to the demands of its public, supported by people around the world, that said exploding nuclear devices above, on, or under the Pacific was wrong, and it had to stop. Well, that hero, that hero appeared, and it came in the form of a small island country, a country known for its lush nature, and so they'll perhaps tell you, it's even lusher sheep. It's known for its mountains, and its big innocuous lizards, and abundance of different birds who, judging by the temerity of their behavior, have so obviously never experienced life with a natural predator. It's a country that can probably, to the chagrined protestations of all Australians, probably claim to have invented the best dessert ever made anywhere, the pavlova. It's a country that, whilst boasting to be the origin of the amazing musician Neil Finn and his slightly less amazing brother Tim, can definitely not lay claim to legendary Melbourne-based band Crowded House, of which the Finn brothers were a part. Our hero is a country so potent and capable, 
when they put their minds to something, that now that they've remembered how to win Rugby World Cups, it seems highly and tragically likely that they will never lose another one. That's right, the hero of our story, who, as awesome as they are, especially in this tale, we should still remember they have to take international responsibility for Russell Crowe, but they can slightly offset this social malfunction by having also produced his older cousin and cricketing legend, the late Martin Crowe, our country is New Zealand. Oh, choice, eh? That's right. The protest movement mounted against nuclear testing in the Pacific during the 20th century was a movement fueled out of fierce, vocal, and determined anti-nuclear sentiment that whilst being international in essence, supported across many different countries, was driven particularly by New Zealand. This is not really a tale about organized mass protest, however, or high-end political dealings, although there are some occasions of particularly ballsy political moves and a fair amount of up-yours-style international diplomacy, it's largely about how a people, no matter how little their influence may seem on the larger stage, can stand firm against the fear-driven insanities of global politics, which say that if you don't have big bombs and a subsequent seat at the Security Council table, then you must simply concede to the whims and demands of those who do. In ways, New Zealand will be put back in its place by the end of this story, but they will come out of it, nuclear-free and on the positive side of the pride ledger. But lastly... And perhaps most importantly, what this story is, is one of blunderous espionage. Yep, it's a spy tale. A story of a large power so conceited in its underestimations of New Zealand that they would perform one of the stupidest covert acts in modern history. It's all pretty ridiculous. And on that pride ledger, quite a few are going to come out of this on the negative side. So here we go. Let's grit our teeth and explore why New Zealand is actually a pretty bang-up place, inhabited by a group of people who, when committed, can be a massive force for change. As long as they can just take their eyes off their sheep. Okay, sorry. It's the last sheep joke, I promise. All right, I don't promise, but I'll try. When France started conducting tests in the Pacific... They did it at the Mururoa and the Fangataufa Atolls, which poke out of the Pacific just about 4,700 kilometers northeast of New Zealand. The first device was an AN-52 tactical nuclear device that was dropped from the air and exploded above surface level on the 2nd of July, 1966. By the 1970s, Concern over the issue had grown enough for it to be a major campaigning point of the 1972 election in New Zealand. The Labour Party candidate, Norman Kirk, who would come out victorious, promised during the campaign that, if elected, he would send a New Zealand Navy frigate with a real-life minister on board to go and protest the next planned series of French tests. Private vessels had already begun sailing out from New Zealand towards the Mururoa Atoll to protest the tests themselves. 
1972, the first Greenpeace ships arrived in the Pacific and began skirting the exclusion zone that the French had set up around their sites. They managed to delay, if not stop, the next planned test. One of the ships, a yacht called the Vega, was skippered by Canadian David McTaggart, who lived in New Zealand. He had answered an advert by Greenpeace for vessels and would become so intrinsically involved with the organisation that he would later become one of its chairmen. In the realm of international law, New Zealand, headed by their Attorney General and joined in support by the Australian and other governments, challenged the legality of French nuclear testing in the Pacific at the International Court of Justice in 1973. New Zealand had already voted in 1959 at the UN to condemn nuclear testing, but here they asked for a ruling against it. This is a summary of the case from the ICJ itself. Quote, France stated that it considered the court manifestly to lack jurisdiction and refrained from appearing at the public hearings or filing any pleadings. By two orders of 22nd of June 1973, the court, at the request of Australia and New Zealand, indicated provisional measures to the effect inter alia, the pending judgment, France should avoid nuclear tests causing radioactive fallout on Australian or New Zealand territory. End quote. So the World Court had ruled that France should probably stop. France, however, just completely rejected it. Stuff you, International Court, they said. And that's pretty much the whole problem of international law right there. So the New Zealand government, having pursued illegal means to end nuclear testing in its backyard and in adherence to the clear opinion of its public, went ahead with the campaign promise that had helped bring the Labour Party and Norman Kirk to power. Kirk, in what is a classic example of efficient and pragmatic government, you must say, put all of his cabinet ministers' names in a hat and pulled out that of Fraser Coleman, the Minister for Mines and Immigration. Coleman, a junior member of cabinet and father of three children, was put on the HMNZS Otago, a Navy frigate. It's worth pointing out that it has been suggested since then that Kirk actually just put a bunch of slips with only Coleman's name in the hat as he was the most junior member of the cabinet. So it was always going to be him. But anyway, along with 241 others who included crew, journalists and scientists, they set sail for Muraroa in July 1973. The ship, with its government representative, was going to sail towards French Polynesia and protest the testing themselves. The New Zealand government was now joining the private protest vessels who were defying French territorial borders in order to tell them to take their nukes and go and get stuffed. Kirk said he wanted to, quote, stimulate world opinion further and attract wider support for the rights of small nations, end quote. He also said that it was, quote, New Zealand's first and most concrete move for world peace since 1938, end quote. This is a none too subtle dig at the militarism of the Korean and Vietnamese wars in which Western allies like New Zealand had become embroiled. Journalist David Barber was also aboard the Otago with Minister Coleman. He was the first to report on the mission and the witnessing of the explosion, and so it was his story that hit international headlines. 
Before the explosion, there was drama out on the high seas. A 38-meter protest yacht called Free, who was acting as the mothership for a small fleet of protest vessels organized by various anti-nuclear groups, was boarded by French naval commandos. David Barber, in his memoirs, wrote about the moment, quote, The Free had been at sea with a crew of 16, including the pregnant 20-year-old Patchouli Yates, for nearly four months when it refused to leave a French-declared no-go zone. I was talking to it from the Otago's Bridge Radio on July 17th, when a 15-man party of French naval commandos took it over. This will probably be our last communication, Skipper David Moody told me. They are about to take the radio. It then went dead. End quote. The crew of the Free were towed to Muroa and then flown out, Their capture and removal from the area indicated to those aboard the Otago that the next planned test was about to take place. It happened on the 22nd of July and was witnessed by Barber, Fraser Coleman and all the others aboard the naval frigate. Barber's report immediately after said, Within a few minutes of the blast, the cloud began to form and could be seen clearly on the horizon above Muroroa, rising through a layer of cumulus cloud and billowing out into a perfect mushroom. End quote. Barber would later quip that the option of mushroom soup on the menu that night had been a coincidental decision made by the ship's cooks. In August, with another test being planned, still more protest vessels sailed from New Zealand. The Otago was relieved by the HMNZS Canterbury, which also took Fraser Coleman on board. He would remain at sea and protest the next detonation as well. Amongst the protest ships was the Vega, owned by David McTaggart and which he had brought to the cause of Greenpeace. He renamed it the Greenpeace 3 for the protest and, along with Anna Horn, Mary Lawney and Nigel Ingram, had set out towards Muruwa in August. Obeying international law but defying France's proclaimed exclusion zone, Greenpeace 3 was shadowed by French ships and helicopters for days. On the third day of their being in the exclusion zone, They watched as several commandos boarded a Zodiac from a French vessel and began speeding towards them. The commandos boarded the Greenpeace 3 and went about beating McTaggart and physically imposing themselves on the others. Mary Lawney tried to take photos, but they threw her camera overboard. Anna Horn had never used a camera before, but she knew she had to capture evidence of the brutality by force of which the commandos had McTaggart cowering with his hands over his head to shield himself from the blows of their battens. Horn later said of it, quote, I'd never really used a camera much before and forced myself to stay detached. Take aim, press the button, wind on, take a breath, I told myself, end quote. She somehow managed to not only capture evidence of the raid, but retrieved the film and smuggled it out as the crew were towed to Muruwa. McTaggart was arrested and the others were all sent back home. Public outrage escalated before they even returned. The French didn't know that there had been photographs taken of the beating. When McTaggart's injuries were seen, he lost vision in one eye for months. The French said that he had slipped on the deck. When Anna Horn's photos hit the press, the world was seeing evidence that he had actually slipped onto the swinging end of a French naval baton. The next planned test did take place. The captain of the Canterbury, 
which had relieved Otago of both Fraser Norman and the responsibilities of New Zealand governmental protest, said it was a piddly little affair. He described it, quote, more like a poisonous toadstool than a mushroom, end quote. However, from all this, the legal pressure in the ICJ, the government protests of the Otago and the Canterbury, and the commitment of private protesters like those aboard the Vega and the Free, France did eventually bend. From 1974, they would stop with atmospheric testing, instead detonating their bombs subterraneously. Although the protesters had not yet fully stopped French testing, this was still an important achievement. There would be no more radiation fallout carried by the wind over vast swaths of the Pacific. It would instead be permeated into the underground coral core and could seep into the sea. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. This was a truly great moment for New Zealand, not just in an anti-nuclear sense, but in establishing a role and and an identity for themselves in the modern world that wasn't just about compliance with and reliance on major powers and allies. Norman Kirk said of the government protests, quote, From now on, when we have to deal with a new situation, we shall not say, what do the British think about it? Or what would the Americans want us to do? Our starting point will be, what do we think about it? What course of action best accords with the fundamental principles of our foreign policy? We are a small nation, but we will not abjectly surrender to injustice. End quote. In the 60s and 70s, ships and other vessels of the US Navy had been occasionally docking in New Zealand ports, being that New Zealand was an ally. However, these nuclear-powered or armed vessels invoked mass protest. On the street of New Zealand. (laughs) Sorry. Streets. More than one street in New Zealand. Kind of. Nobody knew whether these US vessels were nuclear powered or armed because the US refused to reveal such information. In the 70s, the protests had gotten pretty vehement and areas around the ship had to be cordoned off. Between 1978 and 1983, public opinion against these visits went from 32% to 72%. Norman Kirk died suddenly in 1974, while still in office. The opposition party, the Nationals, had managed to capitalise on the instability, and in 1975, led by Robert Muldoon, had come to power promising a change to New Zealand's superannuation structure. Muldoon felt that the ship visits made by US vessels to New Zealand ports was an important part of maintaining the relationship between the two countries. But the public thought otherwise. In 1983, with the next election not far away, a visit by the USS Texas provoked mass outrage. When Muldoon called an early election, the Labour Party, looking to come back into power, campaigned on an anti-nuclear agenda. They were swept to power in 1984, led by new Prime Minister David Longy. Longy immediately had the pressure on him to refuse any future US ships. He sought some wiggle room, but by now the public mandate was so obvious that he had little choice. When, later that year, the US requested that an old guided missile destroyer called the USS Buchanan be allowed to moor in New Zealand ports, they hoped that the perception that it was not nuclear armed or powered 
would be enough. But it wasn't. And on the 4th of February, 1985, Longy famously said, no. He later explained, quote, near uncertainty was now not enough for us. Whatever the truth of its armaments, talking about the Buchanan, its arrival in New Zealand would be seen as a surrender by the government, end quote. The US was absolutely furious. Longy stood fast. He even went on television and debated with right-wing pro-nuclear US televangelist Jerry Falwell. Within the speech he made that night, which he later said was not his best, but certainly his most important, he said, quote, And there's no humanity at all in the logic which holds that my country, New Zealand, must be obliged to play host to nuclear weapons because others in the West are playing host to nuclear weapons. That is the logic which refuses to admit that there is any alternative to nuclear weapons, when plainly there is. It is self-defeating logic, just as the weapons themselves are self-defeating, to compel an ally to accept nuclear weapons against the wishes of that ally is to take the moral position of totalitarianism, which allows for no self-determination, and which is exactly the evil that we are supposed to be fighting against. End quote. So, having been pressured out of atmospheric testing, France's solution involved drilling great deep holes into the coral atolls, dropping the bombs down them, and then blowing them up. This they did, from 1974 on. But in the 80s, a few closely monitored research teams would be admitted to the testing sites at Muruwa to conduct experiments evaluating the environmental impacts of the tests. The Preparatory Commission for the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization reports on the results, quote, A report by the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War and the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research on the Environmental Effects of French Nuclear Testing found evidence that radionuclides were vented into the environment. Possible long-term effects include leakage of fission products to the biosphere and transfer of dissolved plutonium from the lagoon to the ocean and the food chain. At least one major test-related landslide and consequent tsunami occurred in Murawa on the 25th of July, 1979. The report on the environmental effects of nuclear testing claims that a 120 kiloton weapon that was being tested became stuck inside the shaft and could not be dislodged, but was exploded anyway. The explosion resulted in a major underwater landslide of at least 1 million cubic meters of coral and rock and created a vast cavity. The underwater landslide produced a major tidal wave comparable to a tsunami, which spread through the Tuamotu archipelago and injured people on the southern part of Muruwa. End quote. The too long didn't listen part of that is it's fucked. So in terms of where we are in our story, and before we get to the thrilling spy stuff, this is what is going on in the Pacific. The French are detonating nukes, which is having a detrimental environmental and health impact on surrounding lands and peoples. The New Zealand government has complied with the wishes of the people, and whilst actively protesting and legally challenging France on its nuclear testing, has now also told the US to take its are-they-or-aren't-they nuclear or non-nuclear vessels and go and get stuffed. 
If you're sitting there thinking, what this story really needs now is some espionage, then you are in for a treat indeed. In 1978, Greenpeace UK had bought a 40-metre trawler called the Sir William Hardy from the UK Ministry for Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. They gave it a four-month refit and a brand new name. They called it the Rainbow Warrior. The vessel's first campaigns were in the North Atlantic, harassing Icelandic whalers. But by the early 80s, she was in New Zealand, and by 85 had been equipped with sails, in preparation for voyages into the Pacific. As a part of these campaigns, the crew relocated about 300 Rongelap Islanders from their atoll near the Marshall Islands. They were showing signs of the effects of radiation, caused by the testing done by the US in the 60s, such as that experienced by our humble Japanese fishermen in the beginning of the episode. The governments of the world weren't doing anything to help these people. It took the efforts of groups like Greenpeace to come in and give them the luxury of a non-radioactive island to live on. Following this, Rainbow Warrior returned to New Zealand. The Auckland office of Greenpeace had developed plans for a massive flotilla of protest vessels to be led by Rainbow Warrior that would defy France once again and try to delay or even stop the coming planned tests, further highlighting to the world how contrary to popular opinion nuclear testing in the Pacific was. On the 23rd of April 1985, a young woman walked into the Auckland office of Greenpeace. With her, she carried a letter of recommendation from the Greenpeace office in her native country of France. Her name was Frédérique Bonlou. She was 33 years old and, so she told them, an environmentalist of French aristocratic heritage. She was a trained geomorphologist and she was there to offer her services on Greenpeace missions. Over the next months, Bonlou became a part of the local Greenpeace scene. Given that their biggest campaign was against the French government, having a native speaker and French national was a boon for them. She worked in the office, she helped plan and strategize, and she even helped to write a letter to French President Francois Mitterrand requesting that he stop all nuclear testing in the Pacific. She became friends with other workers, volunteers, and even directors of the organization. She stayed with different people, sleeping on their couches or in spare rooms, and ingratiating herself to them. But, as you might have guessed, Frédéric Bonlieu was not an aristocratic hippie with a passion for rocks and the Earth's surface, but actually an officer for the General Directorate of External Security, the DGSE, France's Foreign Intelligence Agency, and her name was actually Christine Cabon. She was but one agent within an entire planned attack that had been formed by the DGSE on Greenpeace. It was to be aimed at limiting or destroying its ability to continue protesting in the Pacific. This whole operation was given the codename Operation Satanic. Operation Satanic. Let's just pause for a moment and reflect on that codename. If you're a government planning a not exactly legal attack on an NGO on the foreign soil of an ally using secret agents you had planted in that country months leading up to the attack, what name would you choose? 
we had to think about this. We would probably choose something which sounded rather innocuous, trying not to draw attention to ourselves. Something like Operation Fluffy Kittens or Operation We Are Definitely Not Planning a Terrorist Attack. The name, the name the French chose, Operation Satanic, sounds like something from a terrible spy novel. So ridiculously over-the-top evil that if you were reading it sitting at an airport while waiting for your plane, you would be rolling your eyes. But, yeah, for them, Operation Satanique was magnifique for their plans, catastrophique in the Ocean Pacific. The objective of Cabon's mission was to gather information on the Rainbow Warriors itinerary and to monitor its communication, to gather photos and information on Auckland's street and maritime layout, and to detail the dock where the boat was to be moored when it returned from the Mururoa Atoll. It is thought she also sourced where to get an inflatable boat and gas bottles for diving equipment. Cabon would not have known the entire details of the French operation, as would be the case with all subversive actions taken by state governments everywhere, the principle of partition applied, wherein no agent, no one agent, knows the entire operation, nor would any one agent in the field know any of the other agents in the field. After six weeks posing as Frédéric Bonlu, Cabon suddenly departed Auckland in early June, She flew to French Polynesian Tahiti, and then on to Israel. Her job in this was done. On the 7th of July, the Rainbow Warrior arrived to dock at Marston Wharf in Auckland. It was open for visitation, its appearance as Greenpeace's biggest ever ship being a publicity boom for the environmental war that they were fighting against French nuclear testing. It's widely believed that numerous French agents would have posed as tourists and curious supporters, touring the ship at its moorings. New Zealand is an extremely popular tourist destination. It offers beautiful landscape and coastline. Winter activities, like skiing and drinking, can be combined with summer activities, like sailing and drinking, which can be further combined with local activities, such as gazing at sheep and drinking. (laughs) I didn't promise. Swiss tourists, a couple called Sophie and Alain Tourange, were on a honeymoon holiday in New Zealand. They arrived in Auckland on the 22nd of June on a flight from London. They booked a Toyota camper van and told the rental company worker that they were going to spend three weeks driving around New Zealand in it. To all appearances, it seemed that they were going to do what tourists do. Go and look at things and point at things, take photos of things and drink. A French yacht called the Ovea had been chartered by a rich playboy with the name of, and this is great, Dr. Xavier Manigou, which is just a classic rich playboy name. And by the way, you might have noticed that um, there's a bit of French pronunciation in this episode. And if you're sitting there thinking you're doing a really crap job, uh, just get used to it. But it is a unique opportunity because not only are you going to hear terrible French pronunciation, you're also going to hear me butcher a bunch of Maori place names. The Ovea arrived in the harbour of Parangaranga at the very north of New Zealand on the 22nd of June, and then in Wangarai, just north of Auckland, 
on the 28th. That was good, bro. <laughs> Cheers, bro. On the 9th of July, the Ovea set sail from Wangaroo, heading north towards, let me try this one, Australia, where it would arrive at Norfolk Island on the 13th of July. However, before actually heading north, the Ovea made a curious tack south and, under the cover of darkness, made landfall somewhere near Auckland. There, they were mysteriously met by the honeymooning couple, Sophie and Alain Tourange, who were driving around in their Toyota camper van, looking and pointing at things. The crew of the Ovea unloaded from the yacht into the Toyota, a Zodiac dinghy, an outboard motor, and a couple of limpet mines. It's not your typical tourist activity. That's because, shock horror, Sophie and Alain Tourange were not really tourists at all. They were, in fact, two French intelligence officers called Major Alain Maffat and Captain Dominique Prieur of the DGSE. And the Ovea, although having been chartered by this rich playboy Xavier Manigou, was not there just to float around and look pretty. The skipper was named Raymond Felsch on the fake passport that he held. But in reality, he was actually Roland Velge, an army combat diver who had been loaned out, so to speak, to the DGSE. With him were fellow DGSE agents Gerald André, a.k.a. Eric Andréon, and Jean-Michel Batelot, a.k.a. Jean-Michel Bertello. He obviously didn't put much thought into his alias, that dude. Gerald André had flown a month before from Paris to London on the 29th of May, and he'd gone to Barnet Marine Centre next to Stanborough Park in North London and purchased a dinghy, paying in cash. The purchase of this Zodiac attracted attention due to his being a sketchy French dude with giant wads of cash, and it was easily recalled later. Furthermore, the dinghy came with a very traceable serial number for the boat. Now, I'm not an expert on espionage, but this doesn't seem like very good espionage. It has been suggested that the French were proceeding with this operation, having attained the blessings of MI6 and the British government, who also hated angry hippies on boats. It has also been suggested, alternatively, that the DGSE was trying to pin the operation on MI6, and that the Zodiac being purchased at Barnett's Marine Centre would do just the trick. It's unknown how many French agents were in New Zealand at this time or how many were involved in this operation, but there was at least one other group. The Tarangers took the dinghy, motor and mines to Stanley Point in Auckland, where witnesses recalled seeing two men taking a Zodiac out of a Toyota and putting it in the water. Those taking charge of the charges, the limpet mines, were the third active group in this operation. The Frogman, which is a hilarious term for military divers when they also happen to be French, which in this case they were. The members of this group had also entered New Zealand as tourists and included divers Jean Camar and Jean-Luc Kister, who had posed uh, as Jacques Camurier and Alain Tonnel, respectively. Their cover when they had arrived at Auckland Airport on the 7th was that they were physical training instructors for a girls' school. 
which is very French. Instead, here they were meeting the Turangers, taking possession of the mines and the Zodiac from them. They then proceeded to Marsden Wharf in the Zodiac to go and blow a couple of holes in the Rainbow Warrior. This part of the plan went successfully, so to speak. The two mines were laid expertly on the hull of the ship at about 8.30pm New Zealand time. They then all sped away in their fancy Zodiac. About an hour later at Hobson's Bay, a man wearing a red woolen beanie was seen abandoning a Zodiac outside the Outboard Boating Club. He clambered up the embankment and onto Tamaki Drive, where a Toyota camper van pulled up and whisked him off. Why this is known is that the vigilant members of the Outboard Boating Club had actually responded to a recent spate of boat thefts by forming themselves into a kind of harbour-based neighbourhood watch. A patrol of them had seen the red-beanied man abandoning the Zodiac, which is the opposite of boat thefts, but still highly unusual behaviour. They looked at the Zodiac and they thought, that boat's a beach does, bro. And um, one of them diligently wrote down the number plate of the camper van, which they'd seen pick the man up. A little after 11.30pm, the first mine exploded on the hull of the Rainbow Warrior. The boat shook, and as most of the international crew were by then in their cabins, and most being asleep, it rudely roused them. Nobody would have known what was going on. Every ship has protocol for emergencies, and this was no different. Captain Peter Wilcox described it later. Quote, We were moored when I was woken shortly before midnight by a massive jolt. My first thought was that we had been in a collision. I grabbed a towel, and 40 seconds after the explosion, I was standing by the engine room. The water was almost up to the main deck. I went back out, and it was about then that the second bomb went off. I just said, Abandon ship, everybody off, now. End quote. As the crew, which included sailors, volunteers, journalists and other activists, stood on the dock watching the ship sinking, the second bomb had gone off. Somebody realised that Portuguese-Dutch cameraman Fernando Pereira was not there, but somebody had seen him after the first blast. Had he run back on board? Was he out on the town? It would have been huge confusion as they tried to account for everybody whilst trying to process that the Rainbow Warrior had just been attacked. Wilcox and others ran back to the ship into the engine room as the water levels rose. The ship was going down quickly. If Fernando was down there, maybe they could get some dive equipment and go look for him. But there was diesel and oil everywhere. A huge fire risk. When the fire department arrived, they ordered everybody off. New Zealand police initially thought Greenpeace had sabotaged their own ship as a publicity stunt. Peter Wilcox and his crew were actually arrested and held overnight. But the next morning, the body of Fernando Pereira was found by police divers. His legs were wrapped up in the straps of his camera, confirming that he had sought to retrieve his gear and tragically, in the process, had drowned. He survived in Amsterdam, where he had lived, by a daughter, a son and his former wife. Also that morning, A Swiss couple on honeymoon arrived at Auckland Airport with their Toyota camper van, which they had rented for three weeks, but now had to return early. They must, so they said to the rental company worker, return to Europe in an emergency. They then waited for a refund 
for the early return on their hire agreement. I've spent a fair bit of time in and around French culture, and this seeking a refund doesn't surprise me at all. It is, however, simply terrible espionage, because had the Tourangers simply abandoned their Toyota camper, forsaken any chance of a refund, and boarded their intended 11.30am flight to London, then their role in this might never be known. However, the diligent neighbourhood boat patrol who had taken note of the abandoned Zodiac the night before that was beached as, and who had taken the number plate for the Toyota, then gave that number to the police, who traced it to the hire company. The Tarangers were delayed by the receptionist at the hire company long enough for a detective to arrive. The couple was detained and questioned. Although they were released, they were unable to travel whilst their documents were checked. On July 12th, France denied its involvement, condemning the attack. But on the 15th, the Tarangers, well, they were arrested on false immigration charges, determined by their very dodgy fake Swiss passports. Their real identities and nationalities were very soon determined. Now it was clear. This had not been a terrorist attack, nor was it self-sabotage, but it was officially called a criminal attack in breach of the international law of state responsibility committed on New Zealand's sovereign territory. A major investigation and police hunt for the perpetrators ensued, but alas, none of the other French operatives were caught. The three agents on the yacht Ovea were arrested by New Zealand police on Norfolk Island in Australia, for which they had set sail 36 hours prior to the detonation of the bombs. The police had flown there shortly after the explosion based on really quick investigative intelligence guarded in Wangarei where the Ovea had been docked. Supposedly the crew had drawn attention to themselves there, particularly because one of the agents had slept with the wife of a local policeman. This also sounds pretty French. And perhaps it's actually pretty standard espionage, actually. Forensic tests for signs of explosive on board the Ovea were taken to determine the crew's involvement, but the men could not legally be held until after the results became known, so they were released. The rich playboy, Dr. Xavier Manigou, had flown to Sydney, where he was questioned but also released. The three agents back on the Ovea promptly set sail for French Polynesia. On the way, they reconnoitered with the French submarine Ruby, and the agents stepped off the Ovea onto the sub, which then promptly scuttled the yacht before setting off for France. Other agents, including the frogmen such as Jean-Luc Kister, who had planted the bombs, remained unknown in New Zealand for another 10 days. And what did they do with their time? Well, What else are you meant to do in New Zealand but be a tourist? They went skiing. Yep. After blowing up the flagship of Greenpeace's anti-nuclear effort in what was a state-sanctioned terrorist attack, these blokes jumped in a camper van and went for a jolly time up on the slopes. Scandalously, years later, a brother of French politician and presidential candidate Ségolène Royal claimed that it was another of their brothers, Gerard, who had been a part of the Zodiac team and who had actually planted the bombs. This was later denied. Instead, it being claimed by French media 
that he had merely driven the Zodiac. Either way, it's all very odd. On August 4th, the couple who had been known as the Tourangers, really Alain Mafar and Dominic Prieur, were charged with the murder of Fernando Pereira, conspiring to commit arson and willful damage. In France, the media were all over this story, and demands were made of those in charge of the DGSE, and then also of those above them, the Ministry of Defence, and even the PM and the President of the country. Despite, though, their denial of having anything to do with the bombing, it was soon pretty clear that the attack had been a planned and approved covert action undertaken by the DGSE on the orders of the Minister for Defence, Charles Ernu. Subsequently, Ernu resigned and the Admiral under him was also fired. Extracts of reports were later published in Le Monde newspaper in which it was stated that Mitterrand himself had given his approval. Although a French internal investigation took place, clearing French services of culpability, the investigator himself suggested that he may have been misled in his investigations. Yeah, no shit. Speaking later, David Longy, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, said of these men's actions, quote, That shows you just how stupid military people can be. One destructive, killing act against an unarmed, defenseless ship killed a member of its crew and sealed in place the very policy they were fighting so hard to overcome. End quote. Eventually, on the 22nd of September, the French Prime Minister, Laurent Fabius, summoned members of the media into his office and read them a 200-word statement in which he admitted France's responsibility for the whole affair and also that the truth had been hidden from the investigation. Quote, It was agents of the DGSE that sank the boat. They acted under orders. The truth in this affair is cruel. But what is essential is that it be clearly and totally established as I have committed myself to doing. End quote. In November 1985, Prieur and Mafa pleaded guilty to manslaughter and arson in a trial which lasted less than one hour. They were sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. However, as much as France had admitted its guilt on the world stage, in the back rooms, it was leaning on New Zealand with all of its might, which after so many baguettes and so much cheese is a lot. France demanded its operatives back, despite the fact that they were being fairly tried in a proper court of law for fairly despicable criminal acts. It began to threaten an embargo on New Zealand imports into the European economic community, which would have had a devastating impact on New Zealand's entire economy. If New Zealand didn't bend, then their huge export of things to Britain, especially things like sheep and other sheep-related products, would be stopped. New Zealand also began boycotting French products. After arbitration by the UN in July 1986, the two nations settled the issue with Mafar and Prieur being given to French authorities to serve out their sentence in French Polynesia, whilst New Zealand received a formal apology as well as 13 million New Zealand dollars compensation from the French government, whilst Greenpeace were given 8 million. People in New Zealand were outraged by the way their nation was bullied by France. Things were only aggravated further when Prieur and Mafar were released from jail early. Mafar was sent back to France in 1987 after he complained about having stomach problems. 
Upon returning to France, he was given a promotion. In 1988, Prieur fell pregnant to her husband and was also allowed to return to France. How, you might ask, did she get pregnant from her husband while she was in prison in French Polynesia? Well, her husband had been given a job in security on the atoll she was being held. And according to some stories, the couple had actually spent more time hanging out in Martinique in the Caribbean than in a Pacific jail. Jacques Chirac, the now Premier of France, said of Dominique Prieur's release that, quote, Mrs. Prieur is now pregnant, and the accord foresaw that, in this circumstance, she should be returned to Paris. I respect my signature. When I sign an accord, it should be known that I respect it. End quote. Certainly doesn't seem like he had much respect for justice, though, and for the family of Fernando Pereira. His daughter, Morel Pereira, later said, quote, Letting so many French agents escape jail? That's not justice. Not in our eyes. Not in my family's eyes. And I hope not in the world's eyes. And it's never too late for justice. End quote. After the sinking of the Rainbow Warrior, France stopped its Pacific nuclear testing, but only for a couple of years. They went ahead in 1989 with another underground series, before a moratorium was finally put on it. However, in 1995, Premier Chirac announced another series of tests was to be conducted, just as the world was entering into the final stages of negotiation for ending nuclear testing with the Complete Test Ban Treaty. Quote, I didn't have a choice to get the test done in time to sign a comprehensive test ban treaty. Preparations had to begin in the summer, and if we hadn't announced them, people would have discovered the work going on and accused us of being duplicitous. End quote. No, duplicitous. Never. Schrack promptly earned the nickname Hiroshirak. Global reaction was fierce. In Tahiti, closest to the fallout zone, protests turned violent. The airport was destroyed, with around 40 million US dollars of damage inflicted. Countries like New Zealand and Chile recalled their ambassadors from Paris. Greenpeace and other organizations continued sending protest ships into the no-go zone around Mururoa. At French embassies around the world, protesters gathered, and the now New Zealand Prime Minister, Jim Bolger, said, quote, It's really quite incredible that France didn't listen to not only the South Pacific, listen to the Commonwealth leaders, listen to the United Nations. The voice of the world says no to nuclear testing. And you are left wondering... What part of no the French government doesn't understand? End quote. French representatives labeled this entire response as hysterical and then likely sat down to a lovely charcuterie. At least eight tests were planned for this series, but as the apparently hysterical overreaction to them around the world grew and grew, France announced that. Perhaps enough data was being collected for there to only be six. Finally, on the 29th of January, 1996, Jacques Chirac, Hiroshirac, fronted his country in a televised speech, announcing the cessation of French nuclear testing from here on. He said that, quote, the safety of our country and of our children is assured, end quote. That's really great. It's great. It's great that the safety of France was assured. So it's a real pity that 
for so long, so many decision makers felt that such assurance must come at the expense of the safety of others. For their decisions, the safety of those in and around the Pacific testing zones and the safety of their children had been long compromised by decades of nuclear testing. And these effects are still being seen today. But the moral of this story and why we wanted to tell it to you, not only to keep a focus on the condition of people living in the Pacific who had to deal with this, it's not also just to hang shit on France, as fun as that is. It wasn't even to make as many New Zealanders love sheep jokes as we could, although we did try. The reason this story was important to us is because growing up in Australia in the 90s, this was the first big popular call to protest that we can remember. Even though by threatening embargo against New Zealand, France effectively got what they wanted. They didn't have to ever really face proper account for what they had committed. The winner of the story is still the one who stood up, the one who raised their middle fingers proudly and said, no, stuff you. That had a really big impact on us as kids, and it taught us that no matter how much fear and a need for security can dominate a person or a nation's actions, the right thing to do is still the right thing to do. Sometimes, the only one willing to do it is the one that people least expect. It shows that, in history, powerful morals will still always shine brightest. And even brighter than gigantic nuclear explosions. And if you take nothing else from this episode, at least you'll have a little bit of context the next time... New Zealand absolutely destroys France in the Rugby World Cup final. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. We especially want to say a massive, huge thank you to one special person, Yella Klaas, our favourite, favourite international human rights lawyer. We give you five stars, Yella, for awesomeness. We want to have a beer with you. And if any of the rest of you want us to want to have a beer with you, then be like Yella and tell your friends about the show so they can also shower us with praise and affection. We'll be back soon with another episode of your favorite podcast, Exploring Rebellion and how it fits into the world around us. We love rebellion. Just love it. Convention be damned. Who needs order? We're not even going to finish this. This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.